You're listening to a sermon from Providence Baptist Church in Kansas City, Missouri. For more information about our church, please visit church-kc.com or come and visit on a Sunday morning. Sunday School for All Ages starts at 9 a.m. and our worship begins at 1015. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning once again. Good morning, morning, Dan. (laughs) This is is a responsive service. Good morning. morning. Again, there you go. You got the hang of it. If you would, please join me in your Bibles in Luke chapter 1. And I had my place marked, but now it's, it's in Isaiah. Here we go. Luke chapter 1. Today will be in verses 26 uh, through 38. So, I'm like a kid in Christmas. Don't you, don't you love the Christmas season? Don't you love the Christmas season? Y'all, y'all, y'all need to wake up. We'll see what we can do about that here in just a moment. Let's read God's Word together. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. My goodness. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And all God's people said, And Father, thank you for your holy and your precious word. Thank you for the great gift of your son, Jesus, the greatest gift ever known to man. I thank you for the privilege that I have to stand here this morning before your people and to divide your word here and preach it to them today. I pray that you would be with me, pray that you would equip me uh, and allow me to, to perform this task today in the power of your spirit. Father, I thank you and I praise you and uh, all of these things I pray in Jesus' wonderful and precious name. Amen. Well, a few years ago, our family went for a little drive in the country. We left North Carolina, we went to Michigan. It was quite the Sunday drive. From Michigan, we went to Chicago. 
And we went and we actually saw the Home Alone house. You should do that sometime if you have the opportunity to do that. From Chicago, we drove through Iowa, the great state of Nebraska, on our way to Colorado. We stayed in Colorado for a couple of weeks, checked that out for a while. Then we said, we haven't seen enough, let's go farther. So we went to Utah. Then we went down to Arizona and we saw the Grand Canyon, spent the night there, inside, not on the rim of the canyon. And well, we were at the rim of the canyon, but we were inside. Then we said, let's go back. So we went to Colorado again, spent a couple of nights there. And then we said, we've had enough of this, it's time to go home. So we left Colorado and we started heading east down I-70. You ever heard of that? And uh, on our way to North Carolina, we actually stopped right here in Kansas City, spent the night just on the other side in Kansas. That does still count, right? Over there by the, the racetrack, having no idea, of course, that one day we would end up living here. And then finally, we made our way home. You know, I don't know if you realize this or not, but God has really blessed our country with beautiful vistas and wonderful people. And so if you ever have the opportunity to take a drive across this beautiful country of ours, you should do so. You should take that opportunity because I, I think the only way you can really experience all of the wonderful ways by which God has blessed this land of ours is by taking a road trip. You cannot experience it from an airplane. And that brings me to this question right here. Have you ever heard the term flyover country? Are you, are you familiar with that term? Some of you are laughing. Some of you are saying, yes, I'm familiar with that term. Pastor, you shouldn't be talking about that here. Well, just, just hold on for just a moment. Some of you, maybe that's the first time you've heard that term. Maybe you've heard it and you don't really know what it means. Well, what is flyover country? Well, the term is used by some people in our country to describe the land between the East Coast and the West Coast. Well, that would include, that would include us because we're kind of like right here in the middle of all of that. Why is it called flyover country? Well, it's called flyover country because the social, political, and wealthy elites in the big cities of the East Coast and West Coast only ever view it from an airplane, all right? From their perspective, these coastal elites, they, they have no real interest in getting to know the people and places that make up the heart of our country. Now, please understand, this is not true of everyone who lives on the East Coast and the West Coast. You do realize I'm originally from the East Coast. There are plenty of people, there are plenty of flyover country places on the East Coast and the West Coast. These are the people in those big fancy cities, Washington, D.C., New York City, Boston, San Francisco, Los Angeles. These coastal elites have no real interest in getting to know the people in places that make up the heart of our beautiful country because in their view, we the people of flyover country are culturally, politically, ideologically, and religiously inferior. In their view, nothing of significance occurs in flyover country. I don't know about you, but I'm a proud citizen of flyover country. Can I get a witness this morning? All God's people said, yes, amen. I'd much rather live here than anyway. Now you're wondering, what in the world? <laughs> how, please tell me, how in the world does this connect to the Bible and the story of Jesus? Well, what if I told you that there was a flyover country in ancient Israel? You'd say, Walter, you're getting really crazy now because don't you know they didn't have airplanes in those days? Yeah, I, I, I get that. But if they did have airplanes... In ancient Israel, there would have been a flyover country in ancient Israel, and it would have been the area known as Galilee. This area, Galilee, and the people who lived there, they were held in contempt by the ruling and religious elites of Judea 
and Jerusalem. The ruling elites of Judea and Jerusalem considered the people of Galilee to be socially, culturally, and religiously inferior. As far as the elites were concerned, there wasn't anything important about Galilee. And certainly, no one of significance, such as the Messiah, would ever come from there. Or so they imagined. But God had other plans. And in His infinite wisdom and in His sovereign power, He would choose this lowly and humble region of Israel to bring into the world the most significant person to ever walk the face of the earth, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pick up His story in verse 26, and there we read, in the sixth month. Well, the sixth month of what? Well, Last week, in the previous section, we saw how God sent the angel Gabriel to the temple in Jerusalem. Zechariah, Elizabeth's husband, was there. He was burning incense, which means that he was, he was praying. And he was probably praying for the redemption of the nation of Israel. And while he's in there, in the temple, praying and burning incense, the angel Gabriel appears to him and says, your prayers have been answered. God is going to begin the process now of redeeming the nation of Israel. And it's going to begin with a son for you and Elizabeth. Your barren wife, Elizabeth, is going to have a child. That was six months ago, right? Now we have fast-forwarded six months. So six months since that encounter, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. And so if there was a capital of flyover country in ancient Israel, it probably would have been Nazareth. Nazareth is the definition of nowheresville. It is a very small village in the heart of flyover country. In fact, church, Nazareth was so small and it was so insignificant that it is never mentioned in the Old Testament scriptures. Maybe you knew that. I don't know. But you, you can't find a mention of Nazareth anywhere in the Old Testament. Nor is it ever mentioned in any intertestamental literature that we have. That, that would be anything that would be written from the time of the ending of the Old Testament to the first century when the New Testament was written. There's no reference to the village of Nazareth in any of that literature. The Jewish historian Josephus, first century historian, he never makes mention of the town of Nazareth, nor is it ever mentioned in the rabbinic literature of the time. Here's something that I think you should know, church. Because of its omission from these ancient sources, opponents of Christianity for centuries, for centuries believed that Nazareth did not exist during the time of Jesus. It must have only come to be much later because it's not found in any of these ancient sources. That's what they believed. And so they went on to point to this as evidence then that the whole story of Jesus must have been a myth. If, if Nazareth didn't exist during the time of Jesus, they reasoned, then Jesus, the story of Jesus, must not be true either. Well, I've got some great news for you this morning. Archaeologists have since unearthed incontrovertible evidence that Nazareth did in fact exist in the time of Jesus. In fact, it existed long before the time of Jesus. So let the record show this morning that the historian Luke, that he did his work and he got it right. Let the record show that here is another instance of science confirming the truth of the Bible. And this happens more often than the scientific community would lead you to believe. And let the record show as well that I love my Bible and I have many good reasons to love my Bible. And this is just one more. Now, in any case, church, Gabriel is sent by God 
to this little hick town in flyover country. And that is exactly what it is. It's this little hick town in flyover country. And one thing that Luke is telling us here, and I want you to get this, the contrast between this setting this week and the previous setting last week is enormous. Last week, we were at the temple, the seat of the political and religious power, the place where these ruling elites and religious elites of Jerusalem, it's where they live, it's where they play, it's where they, they look down their noses at other people, the people of Galilee. That, that was last week, all right? No one is surprised to read in ancient Israel of God working at the temple. They expect that. But no one at this time, no one in Israel would ever dream of what God is about to do in this little backwater known as Nazareth of Galilee. So church, here is something else you should know up front today. This is the beginning, this contrast between what's going on at the temple and what's going on in Nazareth. This is the beginning of a very important theme in the Gospel of Luke that scholars refer to as the Great Reversal. We're going to see this theme recur over and over again throughout the gospel. The great reversal is the idea that through the person and works of Jesus, God is turning things on their head or upside down for the Jewish people. That through Jesus Christ, God is going to challenge the traditions, the dearly held beliefs, and the values of the people of Israel. And one of the values that Jesus will challenge is the value that had been placed on external appearances. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, here's an example. If you were wealthy in that culture or of high social rank, it was assumed that God had blessed you. Or it was assumed perhaps that that, that God would would be really fortunate to have you on his team. Oh, you're you're politically connected. You're you're socially connected. Oh, you're very wealthy. Oh, Oh, God must be so happy to have you on his team. They would judge by external appearances. Uh, Another manifestation of external appearances was the value that they placed on religious education, meaning, well, which rabbi did you study under? When, when Jesus became a rabbi and he, had, he gathered together a group of disciples, he didn't make that up. That, that wasn't something that he started. That, that was something that had already been going on for many times. There were many rabbis in that day and age, and they, they would gather together disciples who would learn from their rabbi. And there were some really big names in that world. And so if you had studied under a rabbi, the elites in Jerusalem would ask you, well, which rabbi is it? Who, who did you study under? Or... They might ask you, well, how far did you go in Torah education as a young child or teenager? That was also a thing in that culture. Is if you didn't have the right pedigree, educationally speaking, they would just look down their noses at you. They would be very snobbery about it, if that's even a word. Acts chapter 4, verse 13, we actually see an example of this in Scripture there. Uh, Luke records for us, now when they, who are the they in Acts 4? They would be the the elites in Jerusalem. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, these two guys who studied under the rabbi Jesus, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. So uneducated there in Acts 4, it doesn't mean what we think that it means. Peter and John knew how to read and write. They, They were educated men. Uneducated common just simply means they didn't go to the right schools. So where I come from, this attitude still exists. And I imagine it exists 
all around this great country of ours. But where I come from in the great state of North Carolina, uh, there's these, these blood... Sp- uh, well, no, blood, blue, <laughs> blue blood schools, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in, in one of them. It's the flagship university of the state of North Carolina. They have a great public university system there in North Carolina, and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, it is the flagship university. And people who go there, they will sometimes look down their noses at people who might go to, say, NC State, which is an ag school. It's a great school, but, but those people in blue, sometimes they make say, who are you? You're just some hick from some hick town in some backwater town in North Carolina, and you went to some miserable cow college in NC State. What do you know? And that's why I don't like the Tar Heels, one of a number of reasons. It's a true story. I have a sister who graduated from UNC Chapel Hill, but she's an NC State fan. But that's another time. Uh, that's for another time. But that kind of attitude, it exists in our day and time. And that's the kind of thing that's going on here. These guys, Peter and John, they didn't go to the right school. They certainly didn't study under the right rabbi. All of that to say this, in a culture that valued external appearances, the right education, wealth, and social status, Jesus will show that God values humble, faithful, and grace-filled servants and that God can use anyone from anywhere. Regardless of the education that they have received, regardless of the size of their bank account, regardless of their, their social rank or status, in God's economy, church, the inward person is far more important than what's on the outside. And this is the great reversal. Jesus is going to have to come and teach the people of Israel this truth. And nowhere is this more evident than in the person that God chose to bear his one and only son. We read in verse 27 that Gabriel is sent to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. If you read that very closely, you will see that twice, not once, but twice, before Luke tells us her name, he tells us that she is a virgin, the virgin, the virgin, and the virgin's name is, is Mary. And so the emphasis is on her virginity in four reasons. This is going to set up the miracle of this child's conception. And oh, what a miracle it will be. Barren wounds like Elizabeth's that we saw last week, God had opened those before. That, that wasn't anything new. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Samson's mother, Samuel's mother in the Old Testament. This was something that God had done before and many times before in the Old Testament. But a virgin conceiving, this is an unprecedented act of God. We are told that Mary is betrothed to Joseph. You all have heard the story uh, a number of times. You probably understand the significance of this, but allow me to explain very briefly uh, for those of you who may not. Betrothal is kind of like our engagement but much more solemn than that. They are not fully married, but the betrothal, the betrothal could only be dissolved by divorce. And so they're, they're practically married, but they're not living in the same house and the marriage has not been consummated. That would only come after the formal wedding ceremony. Joseph is of the house of David. This is a very important detail that will come to light in a moment. Verse 28, and he, well, who is he? He is the angel He came near and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is 
with you. Now, if you like to mark your Bibles, you can mark this phrase, O favored one. We'll talk about that for just a moment. What does it mean? Well, it just simply means that Mary is a recipient of God's grace. That's all that it means. And she has not received God's grace because of anything that she has done, nor has she received God's grace because she is holy. She is not holy. And I want everyone to to make sure that we are clear on that. She is not holy. In fact, in this text, Jesus will be described as holy, but Mary is never referenced as being holy. Mary is no different than anyone in this room. She's no different than you. She's no different than me. She no more deserved God's grace than you do or that I do. And that's the beautiful thing about God's grace. None of us truly deserve it. And as Luke's gospel will show, and as Mary's life will demonstrate, the pathway to receiving God's grace is by being humble. The Bible declares God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Luke's gospel will show this time and time and time again, and we see that come to life in the life of Mary. Verse 29, but she was greatly troubled at the same. The very same reaction as Zechariah. Last week, he's in the temple. All of a sudden, the angel appears, and what happens? Literally, he starts quaking in his boots. He's trembling with fear. Same reaction here. She's afraid. She's in the presence of this angelic being and try to discern what sort of greeting this might be. She doesn't understand what's happening to her. She doesn't understand who is speaking to her. And so in verse 30 we read, The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Church, here's a reminder today. Maybe some of you need this. I don't know. But here's a reminder. If you are a recipient of God's grace this morning, through faith in Jesus Christ, and I know that that is most of us, if not all of us, if you are a recipient of God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, then you have no reason to fear anything in this life. Can somebody say amen? Amen. We talked a little bit about this last week. Here's one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. 1 John 4.18. The Bible says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And so church, I just want to remind you, I just want to encourage everyone here today by reminding you that the perfect love of God was demonstrated on the cross of Calvary, where Jesus Christ took our punishment upon himself. Last week, we touched on this a little bit, how you know sometimes when things don't go our way, when we're not blessed, maybe the way that we think we should be blessed, or maybe we've been praying for a blessing from God for many years, and God has just withheld that blessing. When life turns difficult and sour, you know, it can be, sometimes our first assumption is to assume that God is punishing us for something. Maybe it was that stick of gum that I stole from the 7-Eleven when I was five years old, or maybe it was that crossword I had with my parents when I was 15, whatever it is, we can be quick to assume when things don't go our way that God is punishing us for something. We should not be quick to assume that. We should never go there as followers and believers of Jesus Christ. When you place your trust in Him, receiving His grace by humbling yourself before Him, recognizing your sin before a holy and a righteous God, and recognizing that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a sacrifice for your sin. And when He did that, He took your punishment and my punishment, the punishment that we deserve, He took it upon Himself. And when you trust and believe in that, 
in humble and abiding faith and believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, then God declares to you, do not be afraid. You have found favor with God. You have received the grace of God. So church, I just want to encourage you to walk in that truth each and every day. If this is something that you struggle with, don't walk around in fear. Don't walk around in fear, fearing that God is punishing you or that he has it out for you. Walk in the perfect love of Jesus Christ. Verse 31, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. You may recall last week that Zechariah was told that his son would be great before the Lord. Well, if you look here, you will see that we are told or that Mary is told that her child will be great. This actually means that he will be greater. He will be greater than John. And his greatness is first seen in his title. The title is Son of the Most High. And just in case you're wondering, whenever you see Most High, in the Bible, you just need to automatically think of, of God. When you think of Yahweh, you need to think of, of God. And so, whereas John will be the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth, Jesus will be the unique divine son of God. But wait, church, there is more. The angel says that the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. Not only will he be God's son, but he will also have a human lineage, He's coming from the line of David. And this means that he's going to be the God-man. He's going to be 100% God and 100% man. Somebody say amen. Okay, good. I'm glad you agree with that. Don't ask me to explain how that works because I can't. And I don't know anyone who really can. This is one of the mysteries of the faith that we must hold with a clear and firm conscience this is Orthodox Christianity. We believe that Jesus Christ, when he walked the face of the earth, was 100% man and 100% God. Don't ask me to explain it. Most theologians can't really explain it in a way that will satisfy you. This is just one of the mysteries of the faith that we hold very dearly. Now, as a descendant of David, we are told that he is entitled to David's throne. The prophet Isaiah, as where is my beautiful daughter? She's not in here. She read earlier in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, that the Messiah would sit on David's throne for all eternity. So church, Luke is telling us something very important about Jesus. Not only is, is he the God-man, but he is also the Messiah. He is the long-awaited fulfillment of all of God's plans and all of God's promises, including his eternal reign upon the throne of David. Now, let me catch my breath. Somebody in here, or maybe somebody out there in the, in the interwebs, just heard me say that, and they fancy themselves a courtroom lawyer, and they want to raise their hand, and they want to say, Your Honor, I object. And I strenuously, strenuously object. Because when I look around the world, and specifically I look in Jerusalem today, I do not see Jesus sitting on the throne of David. 
That's not happening today, preacher. So how is it that you can stand up there and tell me with a straight face that Jesus is the Messiah and the fulfillment of all of those promises? It's actually a very good question. And I'm so glad that you asked the question because now I'm going to provide you with an answer. All right? It's the best answer that I can come up with. This, this is actually it's a, it's a good question. It's a fair question to ask. And this is the reason why the Jews today still reject Jesus as the Messiah. From their point of view, if he were the Messiah, he'd be sitting on a throne in Jerusalem right here, right now. So how do we answer this? Well, first of all, church, let's keep in mind that Jesus very clearly established the kingdom during his earthly ministry. He must have said it at least a dozen times. But one example is Mark chapter 1, verse 15, where Jesus said, the time is fulfilled. All that God has promised is being fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That was Jesus' way of saying, I have come as the Messiah, and yep, I am going to take the throne of David. But remember this, church. As I pointed out earlier, Jesus' ministry would challenge the common assumptions of the Jews of his day. And the Jews were expecting a warrior king like David to come and overthrow the Romans, the Roman overlords, and vanquish the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people and establish the kingdom once and for all. That's what they were expecting. And to be sure, church, there are many Old Testament prophecies that indicated that the Messiah would be such a king. There's no doubt about that. However, church, this is where they went wrong. And, and we must learn from their mistake. They were focused on those prophecies concerning the Messiah, but in focusing on that subset of prophecies, they missed a whole other set of prophecies concerning the Messiah. For example, Isaiah spoke of the Messiah coming as a humble servant, to lay down his life. By his wounds we are healed, Isaiah 53 declares. And by the way, the prophet Isaiah also foresaw that the Messiah would come from Galilee. The people in, in Judea and Jerusalem, they totally missed that. Totally missed it. But it's very clear in Isaiah. Zechariah the prophet foretold of the humble Messiah entering Jerusalem on a donkey. Zechariah 9.9, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey that that prophecy will be fulfilled later on in luke's gospel when jesus rides into the city of jerusalem on a donkey you say what's the big deal what does that mean a warrior king who comes to vanquish the enemies of god and the enemies of god's people and to set up his kingdom he does not ride into town on a donkey he rides into town on a war horse not a donkey. And so when Jesus came into Jerusalem on a donkey, he was saying, I have come as fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. Here's my point, church. This is what you need to understand. The Old Testament prophets gave us a twofold vision of the Messiah. He would come not once, but twice. The people of Israel missed it. He would come first as a suffering servant to establish his kingdom in the hearts of men. And then the kingdom in the hearts of men would go to the ends of the earth. And here we are today, 2,000 years later, on the other end of the world. And the gospel has come to us, the message of the kingdom. And it continues to go forth today through our missionaries, supported through the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. So he would come first as a suffering servant to establish the kingdom in the hearts of men. 
Then he would come a second time. And then he would come as a conquering king like David and physically rule and reign from a throne on this earth. And I would encourage you to go and read Revelation chapters 19, 20, and 21 to see a fuller vision of this because the book of Revelation tells us that when Jesus Christ comes back a second time, he will indeed be riding that war horse. And he will come and he will vanquish the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people in one fell swoop. And we will rule and reign alongside of him as he rules from the eternal throne of David. Somebody please say amen. And somebody say, come Lord Jesus. Come now. After the 25th, the 26th. Maybe you could come on the 25th. Wouldn't that be great? So in any case, the ruling elites of Jesus' day, they missed it. They missed the twofold prophecies of the Messiah, and their error should be instructive for us. Verse 34, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a, a virgin? Remember last week, Zechariah, he questioned the angel, and he demanded a sign. He said, show me a sign. I don't believe you. This is not asking for a sign. This question is a question of clarification. I'm a virgin. I'm not married. Could you please explain to me how this is going to happen? You know, I've never seen this before. I've never heard of this before. So please share with me how this is going to happen. So verse 35, the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Notice the role of the Holy Spirit in the conception of this child. If you go back and read Genesis chapter 1, at the beginning, the Holy Spirit was there. The Holy Spirit had a role in creation, creating this world out of nothing. Likewise, as God created the world from nothing through the Spirit, He will create this unique child from nothing through the Spirit. I sure do love my Bible because it's one story, one big old story. The child will be called Holy, the Son of God. Unlike his mother, he will be holy, the perfect and sinless son of God who will eventually lay down his life as a perfect sacrifice for the sins of mankind, the only one who is uniquely qualified to do so. To do so. Verse 36, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. If you remember, Elizabeth quarantined herself for five months. And by the way, Elizabeth lives a pretty good distance away from where Mary lives. Mary lives in, in flyover country. Elizabeth, I think, lives in Judea. It's a long ways away. Mary has no idea that her relative, Elizabeth, who's been barren all of these years, is pregnant. And so the angel tells her. And I think there's a reason why. The angel tells her so that Mary would know that nothing is impossible with God. If the aged and barren Elizabeth can have a child, then Mary the virgin can also conceive. Nothing is impossible with God. And I am reminded right here, right now, of Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. And I'm going to paraphrase Ephesians 3, 20. But there the Bible says that we serve a God who can do far more abundantly than we can ever ask or imagine. And I want you to think about the word imagine for just a moment. And think about it in the context of Mary. Because I would imagine that in this moment, Mary cannot imagine what it means to conceive a child through the Holy Spirit. It flies right over our head. She has no point of reference for this. We have 2,000 years of church history 
We read this story every year at Christmas. When we hear of a virgin conceiving, we go, oh yeah, well that's a perfectly natural thing of God to do. Not so in her mind. This had never happened before. She has no reference point. She has no way of imagining what this will be or how this will be. But you know what, church? You know what is so amazing about that? She believed. Look at what the Bible says in verse 38. She says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And if you're someone who likes to mark your Bible or make notes, underline those words. Appreciate those words. Allow those words to sink into your heart. Meditate on those words. Let them marinate in your heart and in your soul. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Let's place ourselves in Mary's shoes for just a moment. I feel confident in saying this and what I'm about to say. Obviously, I don't know, and I never will know on this side of eternity. But I feel confident in saying that this was not Mary's plan for her life. This was not Mary's will for her life. She was not looking for this. She did not sign up for this. This was not on her radar. I think it's fair to say that she would have been content to live a very quiet and comfortable life in Nazareth, settling down, raising a family with Joseph, being a soccer mom, driving the minivan, you know, just doing the nice, comfortable things that we do, whatever it is that we do in our nice, comfortable lives. I think she would have been content with that. But this, and her, her acceptance of, of this, would forever change all of that. All of that is now out the window. And this, and the implications of this, well, this she can actually imagine. She knows full well what is being asked of her and what it will mean for her personally. She, she's no longer going to live the comfortable, quiet life in Nowheresville. People will not understand what she's been called to do. People will talk about her. People will say things behind her back. People will talk about her under their breath. She knows that she will face the very real possibility of death when people discover that she's pregnant. She's not supposed to be pregnant. She's supposed to be a virgin. Betrothed. She's not married. In a very real sense, they could take her to the, town, the center of town and they could stone her to death when they discover that she is, is pregnant. All of this and more she can see very, very clearly. But church, when God interrupts your life and he tells you to serve him in a very certain way, this is exactly how you should respond. No matter the cost, no matter the consequences, we should all say with Mary, let it be to me according to your word, not my will, Lord, but your will, because that in effect is what she is saying. Because of this, church, she is the example of a humble and faithful servant of God. She is also the epitome of the great reversal. As I talked about earlier, she is a poor peasant girl in a culture that values wealth and social status. She has no degrees. She has no religious training. She's lived her entire life in flyover country in a culture that values the religious and social elites of Jerusalem. Outwardly, she is absolutely nothing in the eyes of most Jews. 
That's who she is. But the story of Jesus teaches us that God does not value outward appearance and outward performance. God looks beyond externals deep into the heart where only God can see. And what God saw in Mary, I believe, is what God desires to see in every single one of us. A humble and willing heart to serve Him, no matter what the cost may be to us, personally or professionally. Anyone who has received God's grace should say along with Mary, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And it won't be easy. When God calls us to a task, it does not always, does not, it's not always easy. That I can tell you. But church, God's grace in our lives should result in a life of love and faithful and joyful and humble service to God. So with that said, church, I want to conclude with this. In choosing this lowly peasant girl to bear God's only son, God is indeed beginning the process of turning things upside down for many of the religious and cultural traditions of Judaism. And so I want to leave you with this this one simple question here today. If Jesus were here today among us, would he turn some things upside down? And some of you go, well, yeah, of course, Walter. Don't you see this culture is going to hell in a handbasket? I'm not talking about the culture. I'm talking about God's people. I'm talking about God's people. If Jesus were among God's people today, would he turn some things upside down? Think about it. Like the Pharisees and other religious leaders, sometimes we can get stuck in our own traditions, our own assumptions, our own form of legalism. Like the people of Jesus' day, sometimes we zero in on specific parts of Scripture at the expense of other parts of Scripture. You know what this does? This creates blind spots in our understanding of who Jesus is and our understanding of how He works. Like the people of Jesus' day, we sometimes value external appearances and qualifications without considering the heart of a man or a woman. And sometimes, like the people of Jesus' day, we can be prideful and not open to seeing things the way that perhaps God would want us to see them. So church, I leave you with this very simple challenge. And I I would encourage you all to just bow your heads and close your eyes. Let's just have a moment where we all do business with God this morning with heads bowed and eyes closed. I would encourage you to ask God the following question or questions. God, is there something, some point of view, some tradition, some assumption, some dearly held belief, or some attitude in my life? Is there something in my life today that Jesus would want me to see or to do or to act differently? Ask God to reveal that to you, church. And He will. And when He does, church, I would encourage you to make Mary's words your words. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word.
Not my will, Lord, but your will. Take a few moments of reflection and ask God to search your hearts. Father, I come to you as, as a pastor and a father and a husband. And I ask the same question of myself. Lord, I pray that you would, you would search my heart, that you would reveal anything to me that you would want me to change, any assumption, any belief, any tradition, any attitude, whatever it is, Lord. Pray for myself first. Pray that you would reveal it to me. Pray that I would be humble enough to say to you, let it be to me according to your word. Pray that for, for all of us here today. I pray that we would, we would all, not just today, but every day in our walk with you, that we would just walk in all humility and that we would, we would seek to honor you in all that we are and all that we do and all that we say and that we would seek to advance your kingdom above our own personal kingdoms, and that we would, we would seek to advance your glory and to make your name known above all else in this world. Father, I thank you and I praise you in the wonderful and precious name of Jesus. Amen. I invite you to stand, church. We're going to sing one more song. Come behold the wondrous mystery. It's a time of invitation. It's a time for you to respond. If, if God has spoken to you through something this morning in our, our, our worship service, whether it's through song, through the preaching of the word, now's the time to respond. Make sure you respond. Don't, don't leave today without responding. You can come down to this altar and you can kneel and you can pray. I'd be happy to pray with you. Maybe there's someone today, maybe you've realized you've never received the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. It's the Christmas season. That's the greatest gift ever known to mankind. Reach out and take it. It's a, it's a gift, but you have to take possession of it. You have to open it. You have to make it yours. So I would love to, to be with you at the beginning of that journey. Whatever it is that's on your heart, I would encourage you to come.